All right, y'all. I have the esteemed pleasure to have Derek Cook on our podcast today. And um, I'm going to go ahead, hop right into letting him share who he is because I would just start with some psycho babble and probably make you leave the room with my like creepy fangirling. So I'm gonna let you fangirl while I fangirl over you. Listen, I'm, I'm here for it. Um, so I am, hi everyone. Uh, I am a yoga teacher, a body worker, an anatomy physiology teacher. Um, based off of the East Coast now. I used to, I, I wanna say New York, but I moved out of New York last year. I just haven't really totally accepted that. So I now just say the East Coast. Um, yeah, and we met we met at Wonderlust years ago. Mm-hmm. Three yeah. years ago? I think it was three years ago. It was Pervy and I's like uh, first, two and a half maybe, yeah, three years ago, Pervy and I's first ever um, like girls trip out of Indiana. So we were getting wild. Wild and crazy to a, a ski resort yeah. for Wonderlust. Getting wild. Yeah. Um, okay, well that was very modest, LOL. Uh, let me pull some more out of you. So um, Derek has studied with uh, someone else I fangirl over, which is Gil Headley. Yes. Who is an anatomist. He studied with Iyengar, uh, casual. Um, so maybe share a little bit about like your background of how you got into all the things you got into because you're, you're a body worker, you, are, uh, you work with Rad Roller, you are... Um, Phenomenal yoga teacher. I mean, you have a means, lot. I think you mean the infamous uh, in, yoga teacher. Infamous. You are infamous, <laughs> phenomenal, extraordinary, all things. So how did you, yeah, how did yeah. the many paths lead you where you are? Um, so many years ago, I randomly, I walked into a, a yoga practice at a gym somewhere uh, in D.C. where I used to live and now live again. Um, and it quickly sort of catalyzed a, a just deep passion for a practice that, you know, ultimately really uh, helped me and, and probably saved my life at the time. Um, I was in a rough spot and yoga really helped uh, pull me out of it. So the good it did in my life got me really interested in being of service to other people. And I quickly got into a teacher training program, started teaching something called Budokan, which is this mix of yoga, mixed martial arts. and. And at the time, um, it was definitely one of the practices that was seemingly really interested in honest, like authentic functional movement. Uh, And, you know, there's been a yoga maybe for a while wasn't necessarily that interested in functional movement. There was yoga for the sake of yoga, which was great and is great. And this practice, some of these teachers that I was working with were really... um, dedicated to understanding how things work. So that that set me on a path to be interested in that. In my old life, I was an engineer. I, I worked in theater as what's called a technical director. So I was kind of like the engineer of the sets and lights and, and the production departments. So that felt fit really, really well in my brain, sort of um, desire to dive into how things worked. Um, so I was teaching for a little while part-time and then my teacher offered me a chance to go with him to Japan to teach a teacher training in Japan with him and then, you know, kind of be there for a couple of the yoga festivals that were out there. And in the theater world, if you, uh, 
you know, if, you, when you work in theater, you work in theater, and it's a full-time lifestyle. So the idea of taking a couple a couple weeks off to go travel to Asia was crazy and meant I couldn't keep my job. You know, you couldn't just leave for a couple weeks mm-hmm. and sets still, you know, there's the saying, the show must go on, and that's a, it's a real thing in theater. So I decided um, that it was time for me to transition from part-time teaching, which I've been doing for a few years, into you know diving feet first into this into this practice as a career so i went with them to japan and then i stayed there for a little while then decided since i was going to leave my job and i was going to upend my entire life as i knew it in the world as i knew it i would travel through india because i had been practicing this version of yoga and really kind of dipping my toe into you know yoga yoga uh you know i wouldn't call budokan yoga um it uses yoga and, and it's a practice. Um, but I was dipping my toe into more like traditional forms of yoga. And, you know, if you're going to do that, where better to do it than India as, you know, and also as what a 25 year old, 26 year old, you're supposed to go out and find yourself. So all of those really seem to fit. So I traveled to India where I traveled around for uh, quite a while and, you know, almost a year of traveling total. Uh, over in Rishikesh, in uh, you know Delhi, and all the way down to Goa. Um, so ultimately, about like a quarter northwest quarter of the country. But while I was there, while I was there in Rishikesh, I was lucky enough to um, come into contact with a couple phenomenal teachers. I, I randomly um, walking down the street met a, uh, this crazy old lady named Gurmukh, who just happened apparently to be oh a you know. A, um, well-loved and respected uh, kundalini teacher, something I hadn't really known much about. And she, as, as I've been really lucky to have happened to me, she quite literally just took me under her wing and she said, okay, you're gonna come with me and, and <laughs> learn this thing. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. Um, and also through that, I found a, a teacher named Usha, Usha Devi, who it was one of Mr. Yangar's, you know, kind of leadership teachers. and studied with her for a little while and then went to the institute um, to study there for a little while under her under her lead. Then I traveled from uh, down to Goa where I studied um, something called Kashmir Shaivism or Tantra, which, which I lived at an ashram for a few months and that really became my um, spiritual foundation where I really got to understand the sort of esoteric and the philosophical basis for yoga practices that we do. Um, so from that, you know, tiny little trip in India, <laughs> I came back a crazy bananas um, new person, moved to New York where I started teaching full time. Um, through that, I met a just a genius um, anatomy uh, movement teacher who taught me Pilates, where I, so I learned where I did my Pilates training, and um, where I studied structural integration. Uh, and so she, Courtney, her name's Courtney, uh, she had a studio in New York called Studio Anya, which was, was one of those, like, really, it's so sad because it was a genius, I mean, just genius. And she was genius and... It was such uh, intricate, delicate work that many people couldn't get behind it. You mm-hmm. know, like it's that thing of like, 
it's what the really smart stuff can be really hard to digest. Yes. Uh, and she was, and all, and, and her work is, has, has influenced many teachers. Um, but unfortunately the studio is not around anymore, but I studied with her for quite a while. And that is where I learned that I was so uh, passionate about and in love with anatomy physiology. It's where I got introduced to Gil Headley. And then after watching his fuzz speech, um, which was new at the time, his fuzz speech, uh, for a couple of years, I finally decided to go into his lab and start working with him. And so I've worked in his lab for a few years, uh, doing what he think what he calls like global layered dissections. Um, and through those dissections and through that lab and through the work I've done with him and some like of his research in connective tissue and fascia, uh, which like that work has been presented at the Fascial Congress. That's which is where he's a um, kind of a, a staple with mm-hmm. people like um, Tom Myers and Carla Stecco and uh, Dr. Richard Schleip. Um, those that all that work in my time in that lab got me both. You know, both, so I say a lot of times beforehand. I was I was an anatomy teacher by then when I when I finally went into uh, dissection lab. And I thought I was a good anatomy teacher and I had studied all the books and I knew how things worked and I was an engineer and all that made sense to me. Um, and then I went into a dissection lab and, you know, got scalpels in my hand and saw how things really looked and had a bit of like a, you know, existential crisis because mm-hmm. it doesn't, nothing is like what we, what we're taught it is. Um, the books are, they're best versions of right, but they're just not complete in in Buddhism, there's this like saying that the map is not the territory, mm-hmm. and you like that's a great example of these brilliant books that surgeons learn from and doctors like we all learn from. They're just not the territory, and right. so getting your quite literal hands into the form, so that changed my life. Um, big, I mean, big time changed my life, and I went from there. And my my love of anatomy and physiology and the way the body's put together and works became like an overwhelming passion obsession for it do you think so i have only i've only had the privilege but also have had the privilege to do one cadaver lab and that's a huge goal of mine is to study with gil headley and to do more of that um and our anatomy teacher for our 300 hour uh shannon who teaches at iupy i'm like crawling at her to be like hey can i just follow you around anytime you go in there can i come in can i sign a couple of waivers and come in so yeah, I, but I think what I took away from that experience was just, um, one, it was just such a stark reality of the lack of prana, the lack of life force. So here's this thing that's like very mechanical, um, and it's so clear what animates us is not what's in that being. But then also the like, the word I can only come up with is majesty of like, you know, the, what's the Aquinas, um, the, what comes off of the end of your spinal cord, um, with all the in, the horse's tail, in uh, on your spine, whatever comes down. Your coccyx, your tailbone. Or no, the network of nerves, or um. Anyway, there's like a network of nerves that come off of your spinal cord into your low back okay. that looks like a horse's tail. Okay. And I just remember seeing that, and and like the word that came up is just like majesty, because one, it looks like a network, it does look like a horse's tail. Yeah. It also looks like a network of roots, and I, I just thought like, how 
how majestic and incredible we are. And so that's what draws me to it. And I'm curious, is that what was so compelling once you stepped into that, that that's gotten you so hooked? Yeah, you know, I think that's, yeah, I do think that's a good way to describe it. It's when, when you look inside there, that you can't help but, you can't help but see, like, I always think if you can't help but see, like, the divinity of it. You mm-hmm. can't, like... I don't care, and, and divinity doesn't mean, you know, any particular sect or branch. It's just like you open up a body and you see how complicated and how delicate and articulate and beautiful and uh, confusing and, you know, like it, you can't help but see that it's somehow divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do think, and it's so well hidden and it's so, like, on the outside, it's so simple and it's so, um, uh, sort of, I don't know, beautifully packaged and put together. Uh, and, and also, the other thing for me is shared. So in a lab, like, we'll have a couple of forms on a table. And by the time you reflect the outer layer, you, like, there's, the similarities are overwhelming. The mm-hmm. differences are interesting and fascinating. And the other cool thing is that nobody is the same. Mm-hmm. Things start and end different places on different people. And, you know, we learn, you know, this muscle begins there and go and ends there, as if they're these like very clear. Um, this is a very clear organization or a very clear layout, and there's not, you know, and in my body, my you know, quadri- one of my quadriceps can end way further down my leg than yours, or I might not even have a muscle that you have, or you know, that kind of like those kinds of nuances are are beautiful and special and. Once you take off the identifying features, we are all so similar and mm-hmm. so, you know, relatable, which is cool too. Yeah, it's such a beautiful lesson in variance and nuance, but also oneness and yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, and it's it's almost like you can't I, you can't quite decide which it is. Like right. are we like are we extremely unique and and we are or are we also like of one very similar, you know, layout outline? I think, I mean, we were, we were drinking about yes and before this. <laughs> yeah. I think it's both. I mean, I think you can hold those two thoughts at the exact same time because I think when I think about people who I differ with the most, I also recognize that we probably have way more in common than we do different. It's just the different things are more interesting to pick apart, honestly, and to look at, um, but it doesn't take away the sanctity of how much we have in common as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I find studying anatomy from this angle very um, religious. And, and I'm not a religious person by a sect. I'm just spiritual. And um, yeah, studying anatomy in this way has made me so much more. Well, you know what I find interesting too? So speaking of Gil, I mean, Gil is, is a, is a you know, Gil is a doctor of religion. Mm-hmm. He's not an MD medical doctor. Um, and he, his study was, he really, and much like me, actually him and I both, both grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. We were both going to be priests. We both got sort of like, um, you know, uh, disenfranchised from the church for our own different ways. Um, and the truth is like the way he approaches that room and those forms is from like a, a state of awe, like, mm. like that these bodies are awesome that you know in, in the way like you use awe in the bible not mm-hmm. you know um, cool. yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> with a k exactly <laughs> um and it's really and it is really true i mean you the 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 complexity in there and the the just like the 
nuance in these in these forms is is awesome. Uh, you can, and you can't help. I don't know. And this is, I think, you know, I I got really heavy into anatomy right after I came back from this like deep dive into philosophy, mm-hmm. um, and this this literally full immersion into into tantra or Kashmir Shaivism, which has a very clear. You know, we talked about this the last time I was here. It has a very clear, like, actually pretty simple set of, of sort of um, uh, descriptors or where it comes from. You know, it says, at the very beginning, it says, Jaitanya uh, Atman, like, everything in the universe, everything manifests is a joyful, victorious expression of, of Atman, of the absolute consciousness. Mm-hmm. And Gyanam which is knowledge of the details, is bondage. And... You know, what Tantra says is, this is all divine. This is all, not even of God, but just perspectives on God. And understanding or seeing all the little details and all the nuance and that, you know, that that's this muscle and that's that muscle. Or uh, or even that that's a muscle and that's a bone. Seeing the details is bondage from the simple idea that everything's actually the divine. Mm-hmm. But then Tantra goes on to teach the details because the the understanding is that sure that's true and you have to learn the details it's sort of like you have to learn the rules before you can break them mm-hmm. so you have to learn about the details in order to understand that the details aren't of consequence in order so that you can go back to seeing that it's the details aren't, details aren't of consequence because it's all just god right um yeah yeah i, I won't go too far into it but i think one of the one of the things that um, I've been really struggling with or curious about is our obsession with facts. And yeah. uh, like we're a culture that's obsessed with facts. And um, and if you get it wrong, you know, and by uh, necessity in some points, if you get it wrong, like everybody's going to instantly fact check you. Even if you have the, you know, you do have the knowledge, you have the intent. So like if you say the one wrong thing, because we're a Google culture, we can Google anything, you know, we jump on that instead of looking at, you know, the broad sweeping concept is divinity or God or whatever, or whatever you're speaking on, maybe that, that's not it, you know, in, in context. But um, yeah, but you have to know, you have to earn that respect, right? Like if you just say like false things and you really don't know what you're talking about, right. then that devalues what you say. But if you, you know, slip up because, oh, God forbid you're a human being, you know, people forget that it's part of a larger knowing that you know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. So I'm super fascinated about that, how we've gotten there as a culture. Um, I digress. Okay, so um, so the, did you, were you doing body work? And I, forgive me if you said this, were you doing body work before or during or after? Or no, so I, I started, so while I was, uh, while I was traveling, traveling through India, I met someone from the old medicine hospital in Chiang Mai, uh, and I studied with them, uh, sort of like, India was like such a classic, I mean, it's like such a classic India trip, like, oh, I met this body worker, and I started <laughs> traveling around, you know, studying with them as an apprentice, which, which I did, so I traveled around with them. As a little, as an apprentice, yeah, <laughs> and then um, uh, you're living on the beach and like doing body work, <laughs> which I did, which so. also happened. <laughs> uh, studying with Belgian light workers, which, which also, also yeah. So, um, so I studied with them both Thai body work. So I sort of studied and did like my traditional Thai body work training with them, uh, and then also energy work training with these weird Belgian people that I met while living at a tantric ashram in Goa. 
Um, as you do. Good times. As yeah. you do. Yeah. They wrote a book about it called Eat, Pray, Love. It oh, ah. Like uh, yeah, yeah. I believe I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, this is so unrelated that we don't need, but there was someone that I was traveling, that I met and sort of like formed a deep relationship with who did write a book about the time in India. And so there's this like book floating out in the world that has like a... a portion of my life and trip in there which is quite oh fascinating oh my god you know, it's good times except you're gonna for, be on oprah somehow i mean listen know. nikki if that ever gets on oprah <laughs> i totally support you um yes so i did my thai body work training there then uh, in that style of the old medicine hospital and then i came back to that's when i came back to new york and the um structural in the structural integrationist the rolfer that i uh started working with took sort of took that and took me under her wing and taught me structural work and and uh for vocabulary because i've heard you say it before rolfer rolfing is, is it's a brand of structural integration so okay. there's a woman um what in like the 70s ida rolf and um ida rolf who created rolfing which is like what deep fascial work realignment based based fascial work um and rolfing is probably, you know, one of the most uh, deeply taught, studied, nuanced versions of body work. So okay. I, you, know, you can sort of break down, so, so I guess, vocabulary. Massage means, on like a technical level, massage means oil and certain, and there are different types of massage, but like oil and strokes. And deep tissue massage kind of like bridges these gaps between structural work, what, what I like to think of as like you know, well, structural work, structural integration, one brand is Rolfing, one brand is KMI, Kinesis Myofascial Integration, that's Tom Myers, who was, who did anatomy, who wrote the book Anatomy Trains, or and dissects anatomy trains, okay. he was an old Rolfer, Gil Headley was an old, well, he, they're not old, but were Rolfers, yeah, they studied the Rolf, the, yeah, exactly, the original Rolfer, got it, there got we go, got it, got it. Um, Gil was an original OG Rolfer, Tom was, uh, and they sort of, everyone kind of took their, that work and sort of branched it off. Gil stopped teaching body work and he started doing the dissections of it and trying to understand how rolfing, how the structural work works. Mm -hmm. um, Tom really sort of went off and created a series based off of the rolfing series that is his, is his perspective on okay. the work. So... I would never call, I'm not a rolfer, I didn't go to the Rolf Institute, that's a, that is a very specific, deeper, focused study than I did. I studied with a structural integrationist. But it's like a, it's part of your foundation. Oh yeah, yeah. I would not say I'm a ballet dancer, but I teach from the perspective of that being a great deal of my training. Sure. Yeah? I'm on board for that. Okay. Um, so I, so, uh... Courtney taught me this this type of body work and, and that, so that took my Thai work the more like traditional and, and I've always said um, I really see Thai body work as Eastern version of structural integration mm -hmm. and and so what I did what you know and the big thing I did for a while when I was doing a lot more body work than I am now was this sort of integration of structural integration integration of structural integration and uh, Thai body work. Mm -hmm. So so kind of trying to bring together those two worlds. And they're, they are very similar. I think they do the same things just from different points of view. Okay. So a lot of what um, I have learned from you and, and that I know of you is like your 
interest and also probably the foundation of where you learn about fascia. Um, so could you talk about what it is and, um, and just question, someone told me that they're trying to make fascia another organ. organ? Yeah. Is that real? Yeah. The, uh, Harvard, I guess it's Not it Harvard. Classified. classified. Yeah. Harvard. Well, that's a whole, okay. So uh, you don't have to go down the whole rabbit hole. Maybe just like, everyone is please, it? um, get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Part two, yeah. we'll start in 10 minutes. Uh, yeah. We're going to light a little fire. You might <laughs> eat popcorn. No. Um, so the very short, we'll do like really short. So Gil is where a lot of my, I mean, after doing body work and working, I'm doing air quotes for those of you who can't mm-hmm. see, working in fascia um, is when I really wanted to understand. Because my, my soul just needs to know why things work the way they work. Mm-hmm. I'm not even interested in doing things. I just want to know how they happen. Um, and so that made me want to, that's one of the big reasons I wanted to go and study with Gil. Uh, because his biggest focus, though his focus is anatomy and, and sort of learning the structures, his biggest passion and interest is fascia. Okay. Um, and he's really at the forefront of figuring out what fascia is, how it works, how it responds, what we're doing to it. Um, and that's part of his relationship to the Fascial Congress. And that's really their – the Fascial Congress is a self-appointed group of people who study fascia and are trying to define it trying to describe it, trying to help us understand how how it works and what it is. So, big picture, what is fascia? Fascia is connective tissue throughout the body. Um, there are different types of fascia that live in different places, have different jobs, and therefore have different orientations and structures. There's an argument to be made that's, that fascia is like everything. Because fascia if you define it by this collagenous matrix and elast, you know, a collagen and elastin proteins matrix with, with um, extracellular matrix sort of um, encasing it, surrounding it, or it floating in that, uh, then you can find fascia everywhere. You find it directly on the underside of the skin in what we call the superficial fascia or the adipose. So that superficial fascia is what holds our lipids or our fats which is what we were talking about earlier. Yes. Um, Can you go down that rabbit hole? So I, um, I'm i just going to keep digging uh, shallow holes, which I think <laughs> there are many proverbs that say don't do that. Um, I'm, I'm going to go against that. So I asked Derek, so one of the first things that both Megan and Jenna and a couple of other teachers who had gone to you prior to me even meeting you were like, oh my gosh, you have to meet this guy. Like He's so amazing. He's so brilliant. And he did this adjustments workout workshop. And so... Pervy and I went, like, couldn't wait, blew my mind, and then you dropped this nugget that's just percolated with me, which is the importance of touch, because not just because, like, yes, we all need touch, you know, like, psychologically, like, Maslow did a whole thing on, like, why, you know, nurturing and touch is important, but but also from, like, a, a place you can't see, and that was what you had hit on, so could you share that? I mean, so I, th- I think it's when we were talking about, um, I went off, I was really fascinated for years on this tangent of what our fat does. And, and um, one of the big things that our fat does is it's sort of like an electromagnetic antenna and, and shield. And our hearts are giant electromagnets. You know, some people, they say it's the order of four times uh, more powerful electromagnet than your brain. And so one of the things that your fat does is it disperses that electromagnetic field and acts as a acts as a receptor to it. So the and within that superficial fascia, all over the body, big in big ways or small ones, we've got a layer of fat. Um, some people have more, some people have less. 
you know, some people desperately want to get rid of it. Some people are becoming okay with it. But one of the things that that fat does is it takes that electromagnetic radiation coming off of our heart and sort of like uh, disperses it. So mm -hmm. are my radiations heading out towards you and it receives it and, and kind of receives it as a, like a sensory organ and, and kind of feels it and gets a sense of it or a vibe of it. Um, and so it's a big, it's a big electromagnetic communicator, the, the fat, which is like lipids have like a crystalline structure to them. So they vibrate, they pick up vibrations and they disperse vibrations. Mm. And all of that's happening when, you know, when we come in contact with each other, when we touch each other, like, you know, my fat's talking to your, my, my heart's talking to your heart through our fat. Basically. Well, that's an analogy for life. Yeah, right? <laughs> you know, so, which is also why we, we also know there's been studies that say when we come in contact with other people, our hearts start to beat at the same um, rhythm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. So, so shit like that. I don't know where we came from, but that's the kind of so stuff. We're talking about like, fa fascia. Oh, fascia, I yes. Fascia. It's fascia. Right? I don't know. It's, I think fa it's fascia, fascia. I think fascia so sounds fa, a little fa, more like, you know, yeah. Maybe it's fascia when, like, like, like the Germans call it fascia. <laughs> like, yeah, that's yeah. a different... Yeah, the, the, fa the Fascial Congress was in Berlin this past year, so maybe now it's fascia. It's going to be in Montreal in 2021, so we'll see what we call it there. Okay. Um, when we're talking about that and So, just like, fascia. Yes, what it is. So, superficial fascia, it's the, it's a layer right under the skin that holds our lipids, our adipose tissue. And then, and then between that layer and the muscle is another layer of, of what we might call fascia, which Gill calls perifascial membranes or membranes of fascia in between fascias. Then next you've got, and those are all, these create these gliding surfaces. Between, uh, then you've got deep fascia or fascia profunda which is the fascia mm. that creates, sort of delineates each, mus each muscle, right? Each muscular container. Inside of muscles, there's fascias there. Those are those like fascicles that create the little strands of muscle fibers. Fascia as a whole, all over the body, kind of, it, kind of, it creates the scaffolding of basically everything. Mm. You know, it, the fascia creates the scaffolding of bone. So bone is really fascia with minerals deposited in it. So um, osteos, osteoblasts encourage this production of a, of a hormone called osteocalcin, I believe, which, which is what gets calcium to actually deposit into the fascial matrix of the bone. So you take away the calcium, bone's just a bunch of fascia. It's a bunch of collagen. Mm. You know, you can, there's, a, there's a fascial scaffolding to all of our organs. There's a woman in the Congress Carla Stecker, who's working on stripping all of these like different body parts and organs of their of their like specific adapted cells, like stripping the heart from its cardiac cells, so you get the fascial um, um, framework, and then can build new heart. I mean, so fascia is wow. everywhere. Now, wow. there's arguments, sometimes heated, over are all those things fascias, or mm. is fascia only? these sheets, these like, you know, the fascia profunda, the superficial fascia. How we usually, I, I think those of us who are slightly educated in this usually think of it as the webbing in an orange or like, Yes, you know, which is, that's a great, that's a, I, I always teach it with that analogy. Okay. Yeah. Go peel a citrus fruit and on the underside of the skin is that like fibrous, that's superficial fascia, that's your hyperderm, that's where the fat would be if you were, if that fruit was a person. 
And then on the other side, on the outside of the wedges is another, that's fascia profunda. Oh, and okay. then each little pulp has a fascia around it. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's interwoven and interdigitated and continuous and ubiquitous throughout the whole thing. So, um, so that's mean, fascia. God, that's so fascinating. So as fascinating, fascinating. um, so Good to delete that. I'm not deleting that. It's still recording. I'm leaving that. Um, <laughs> don't worry. Only my mom and um, <laughs> I think one other person who texted me today listens. So Great. We'll be very, very known. Um, so as in, in context of of what I do, of what we do here, yoga. Why does that, why would one as a teacher or a student want to care about their fascia? And then um, how does that play into movement? Yeah, well, fascia is both, so the cool thing about fascia is it does two like completely separate things all at once. It both gives us structure and stability by creating the sort of organization of muscles and bones and ligaments and tendons and even organs. And it's the, it is what creates the gliding surface between them. So we need, we need fascia to allow things to move by each other. One muscle to slide by the next, an organ to move by the next. We, that, that, the, if we didn't have those fascias there, then things get stuck to each other and we don't have movement. It also provides the structure with which we move. You know, muscles, and this is you know, going real basic, but muscles... Um, only create the force they create because the fascia around it is like containing them. Mm -hmm. you, it's called, um, you can consider it a, what's called a hydraulic multiplier. So when a muscle contracts, the muscle fibers themselves, they have a little bit of strength to them. Great. Like a little muscle fiber crawls inside another little muscle fiber that shortens that pulls. But really what's happening is they're creating outward pressure along the bag the fascial bag that contains the muscles and that's what's pulling the two ends of the muscle together so movement is is at the you know fascia is required for the strength we have in movement it's also required for the movement itself the the surfaces to glide by each other it's the force multiplier it's it is really you know and it is what transfers the load through the body from one place to the next, from one foot uh, to the next, from the hand to the core, all of that, it's all, if we didn't have fascia, we wouldn't be able to just, to um, produce force in the body to nearly the same degree that we can. That's so fascinating. My God. So you, um, oh wait, we were, there was another really good question you had asked right before. Well, we were talking about electrical impulses, which you talked about with the heart and how it travels both through adipose tissue, um, and then we were talking about show. Yeah, there's a lot. We've got there's, water there's so much. I mean, I think that's one reason, uh, shameless plug, that I'm bringing you back because <laughs> um, you're brilliant, and learning from you could be like a lifelong fun adventure that I I'm gonna I'm gonna go on. I'm gonna it's creepily an, follow you. It's an adventure. Um, I think where would be interesting to talk about with with fascia and with what we talked about with just seeing the bodies the nuance and the similarities is how do you see that show up in the yoga room and we we talked about you know like their your curiosity is shifting the word from alignment to organization yeah um so how maybe that may or may this might just be a total topic shift but how that may or may not 
impact the bodies in the room and how the questions we should really be looking at as yoga teachers and practitioners is not like am i doing it right i think but more like is it is it functional for my body or not or the question i have been um really considering is is it helpful or is it harmful because um you know my limited knowledge i know that all no two bodies in the room are the same and so your um, Anjaneyasana or low lunge is going to look very different potentially because of your joint positions or potentially because of just so many different factors, right? Yeah. So I'm curious how all that factors in and then your whole opinion on shifting from alignment to organization. Yeah, so we've gotten to, you know, the yoga practice changes over, over lifetimes and eons. I mean, it's 3,000 years old, so it should. Um, and we're right now, when we sort of moved to this modern postural yoga practice, uh, it was cool. We decided to say we, as like a collective, you know, um, as a collective body, yoga practitioners. Um, also, this is just a little side note. Not yogis. We're not yogis. We're practitioners. We're aspirants, maybe. But we're not yogis. And you, and you didn't say yogi, but it just popped into my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. But this, we should do this as a whole other conversation one day. Um, yogis are done. Yogis right. have reached They've yoga. Reached, yeah. They're these, and then if you want to call, you know, the other thing you can do is the little old men wearing little dhotis, like smoking hash, living on the side of a mountain on the in in the Himalayas. They can be called yogis. I'm fine with that. If we were to use the word, like if we were to appropriate the language, the right language would be zenyasi or seeker or aspirant. Mm. And so, us as practitioners, as seekers, we're moving from. You know, uh, we moved into this modern postural practice, which said, cool, there's this deep esoteric practice, this deep spiritual truth that we're seeking. And we, all, we now have more information about the physical bodies we're working in. There's a science now. There's like a, we've got better ways to ask or better questions to ask. Because science is the process of asking questions. Mm -hmm. It's not the process of answers. Um, and yoga is a science. It is asking questions of what it is like to be a human having a human experience or spirit having a human experience maybe. So it's a great – yoga is a science if you define science as the process of asking questions. Well, now we've got these like sciences of biomechanics and anatomy and physiology so we can ask questions about how these physical forms work. So that started to happen and we turned this modern postural yoga into a thing. And then the next thing came, became um, alignment-based yoga. You know, and Mr. Yangar was big on that. And like, this is how alignment works. This is, you put your knee there, you put your hand there. A lot of the alignment practices are, are what Matthew Remsky calls somatic dominance. They are, they are, you put your hand there because that's the shape. Mm -hmm. I'm the teacher, I'm telling you that's the shape. And for multiple reasons, I'm, I'm having more and more of a problem with it. Mm -hmm. One, because when we start to see like the abusive nature of some of these practices, we need to adjust. We need to say like, okay, cool. So that, you know, Mr. Yangar had a, using him, because I studied, he had a weird body. He had giant rib cage, short arms. And so what, where his hand goes and where his foot goes is gotta be, we, it's gonna be different than where my hand goes. Mm -hmm. But his desire and let's give him let's give him the biggest benefit of the doubt was to be therapeutic and heal. So what he taught was what was therapeutic and what he felt like healed him. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right? So that's yeah. all we can do. Yes, that's now, all we can do. Just like, and then, the, so here's some more like yoga blasphemy. Uh, just like Ida Rolf, he died in excruciating pain. He died almost immobile. And so we also know, like, she died in a wheelchair. Like, and one of the greatest body workers of our time, we know that that maybe we have blind spots. John Pilates. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, just maybe, we don't have all the answers. So when we get into these, like, dominant ways of your hand goes there, mm-hmm. this is warrior two, that's that's problematic on, on that, you know, um, sort of uh, imposed will right. way. And it also doesn't take into account how bodies work. Mm-hmm. It turns a practice of asking questions into a practice of performing shapes. And that's, I have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and a little bit on to your point, you know, the way I was educated on is like yoga is both an art and a science and art evolves. Yeah. And art is, you know, the reason that, um, well, I was a ballet dancer, and one of the reasons I loved my conservatory so much was it was the first place I'd ever seen women lifting women, and um, contemporary ballet, and I walked in as one of the only like rail thin, like classical looking ballerinas, and it's because art evolves. Like it's no, that shape is beautiful in a time and place, but it's no longer relevant. Right. And this is what's relevant, so yeah. And si- I mean, and science evolves. Absolutely. We used to, we used think to the think world like, is flat. Yeah, well, <laughs> Still <laughs> um, but we like bloodletting was a thing, right. you know. Like you had four humors, like yeah. you, you know. Now we now we art and science get to evolve. And if mm-hmm. they don't, then there's there's the problem. Exactly yeah. to your point, there's where it's problematic. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm so I'm also so yes. So this idea of alignment. So it also an alignment based class says there is a right place to put your knee and a wrong place to put your knee that putting your knee here is appropriate it is therapeutic and is healing and putting your knee there is potentially injurious mm-hmm. and that's such I, I, it's 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 just wrong headed on multiple on multiple fronts one it doesn't take into account whatever you've been through in your life on physical and like psychosomatic levels mm-hmm. your knee goes where it goes because of all of, you know, I always say your body is simply responding to the demands that you've put on it. Your body is only, an, it's an outcropping of all of the forces and the loads and the stresses and the big T and small T traumas you've been through. So your knee goes where it goes because that's where you've put it and that's where you've worked it and that's where you've trained it. Um, putting it somewhere else might be good training, but it's not necessarily right or wrong. Right. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. You know, so, so if we say the knee goes there, then we're not taking into account the lived experience of the body that's on the mat. We are assuming that we as teachers or, you know, organizers of shapes, you know, um, know better than other people. Mm-hmm. We are also uh, assuming it's, we know the desired outcome. Your knee goes there if you want that. Right. Like that, you know, it's always like, if my desire is to get my leg behind my head, then I should put my body in an appropriate way to achieve that goal. Right. If my desire is to feel really good in the depth of my forward fold and my external rotation of my leg, then I should do I should do the things that get me there. I'll just add a sidebar that you know for those who are listen. I think a majority of people who will listen to this are yoga teachers or aspiring yoga teachers or even uh, practitioners with like an interest in deep 
understanding. And that if then is so critical that learning to cue from an if then perspective, if you want this, then do this. That also, um, for me gives me boundaries of like I can only share with you the if and the then that I know of yeah you know I can't if you want to reach enlightenment like I have no idea so I can't tell you then what next you know um so yeah so I mean yeah yeah that's but that's all we can do as teachers I mean that that is is 100% our job here's what I've played with here's what I've experienced Mm -hmm. here's what I know um so here's where I've been uh you know the other the other thing is that Right and wrong alignment teaches us, whether implicitly or even explicitly, that there are that the body is fragile, mm-hmm. and the body is anything but fragile. Mm-hmm. There are no good shapes for your body. There are no bad shapes for your body. There's nothing. There's no good alignment. There's no bad alignment. There's no good posture. There is no bad posture. There are postures that you spend all of your time in, and so therefore, if you look for a different posture, that might be problematic. There are shapes that are helpful to do the things you're trying to do or shapes that hinder doing the other things you're trying to do. Great. But the body doesn't care. There's no like if you insisted and this is where we go back to the body is only responding to the, to the demands you put on it. Mm-hmm. If you insisted in sitting in a folding chair in, for the rest of your life, your body would respond to those demands as mm-hmm. best it can. It would metabolize certain tissues because you're no longer using them. It would shorten the front chain of your body. It would lengthen the back chain of your body. It would deal with the compression on your sitting bones and your hamstrings as best it could. So your body would do everything it could to, re- to, to respond to the demands you put on it. And it does it brilliantly, by mm-hmm. the way. The problem is if you try to do something else. If you're sitting in a folding chair for all of your life, the problem is when you try to stand up. Mm-hmm. It's not the sitting in the folding chair. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are things that will be very hard for the body to accommodate. You know, there's like a, that deep fold in your femoral artery will start to like cause plaque to build up because that sharp turn gets harder and harder and we don't have a great way to deal with that. You will start to, you know, atrophy the, un, like the undersides of your sitting bones, your glutes, your hamstrings, and you might even, you know, uh, you might, the blood won't be able to flow there to the skin. And so it'll have problems dealing with that. But it's not the shape that's inherently wrong, like difficult or problematic. Right. It's the shape. It's the counter shape. Or the lack of movement. It's yeah. the lack of other options. You know, health in general is access, in my opinion, is access to all the options. Mm-hmm. So a healthy knee can go forward, left, right, back as much as it's got control over it. If you never train those varied options, then in the moments where you either on purpose or accidentally go into them is where you do damage. Yes, there's a an Israeli movement teacher, I can't remember his name, but he teaches he teaches some crazy shit and you're like jumping on, you know, and like plantar flexion inside outside of you like crazy shit, but he's like you if you don't train it, you will you will get injured. Yeah. When you accidentally fall off the curb and you land like this. And so, you know, while that's not the training that I currently practice it's super intriguing to yeah me. you don't listen you know, we don't need to all need to do it but the, it isn't wrong no exactly it's like the yeah so when we so when we focus on i guess the long story short is when we focus on alignment we do a disservice to our bodies mm-hmm. when we focus on alignment and fo- and which typically means a good versus a bad alignment then we do a disservice to the alignments we're not playing with mm-hmm. 
Now, there are more stable ways to organize joints and body parts. So my desire is to sort of shift this concept of alignment into organization. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we're doing anyways. Our right. body is organizing and reorganizing itself according to the loads it's put under. So let's see what we're doing. Let's see what that organization is and then get thoughtful and conscious and interested in it. So as opposed to um, an alignment-based yoga class or even alignment-based movement, I'm interested in being well-organized, getting clear on how I am trying to put my body parts in relationship to each other and what I need to best support that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I mean, from like a thinking of it as a business, you know, it's like you set your goal or your mission statement or whatever, and then you organize around that and you're well organized when those things are clear, we're sitting under Brene Brown's clear as kind. Mm -hmm. When you're clear, and so much of that too, going back to the yoga practice, is the constant reevaluation of self, of how does that feel in my body, how you know, not how does it look. And I, I get um I get questions all the time about why we don't have mirrors. Mm. And uh, as a recovering, lifelong covering it recovering anorexic, there's one reason why we don't have mirrors. <laughs> um two is that I'm not interested in what it looks like, you know, because yeah. I don't care what it looks like as long as it's, it is organized in a way that serves you. Is it, it helpful? It feels strong. It yeah. feels stable. It feels sustainable. Yeah. Because what it looks like is performing postures. Exactly. What it feels like is doing yoga. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, and then the, the other thing, you know, just to play my own, the other side, um, is that it is the, our habits are the most comfortable organization. So if we're trying to grow stronger and grow more options and grow varied, it's not necessarily does it always feel good. Right. It is does it feel right? Does it feel integrated? Does it feel accessible? Does it feel like I can participate in yes. it? Yes. Sometimes, you know, if you want to grow stronger, you have to go outside of what you are already capable of. Right. Totally. You know, the body is – there's this the book called Anti-Fragile. Um, and, and the concept is that all living systems – uh, gain from disorder. They gain from stress, trauma, load. Mm -hmm. So if you are trying to gain mobility, you need to go outside of the mobility you already have. Slowly, thoughtfully, with care. Not, I like, to, I really like to get, not carefully, not cautiously, but with care, with caution. Yes. Uh, because the, because first and foremost, I don't want to go back to this teaching us we're fragile. Oof. Right. That is, I think, one of the biggest mistakes we are doing right now in, as movement practitioners. We are teaching people they are fragile. And that falls into this the concept of what they call the psychosocial pain, psychosocial bio pain model, which is some of the pain and discomfort we feel in our body is because we've been told we should feel it. Mm, my God, that's right? like, interesting. <laughs> yeah, like my back hurts because this is supposed to hurt my back. Oh, or because so I've done damage and I am supposed to feel like this from now on. Oh, that is so interesting. Some of it is because of real damage. We just don't like that. We don't know. So our job as, as teachers and even as movers is to get really still and really quiet and really complete, you know, uh, 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 lean in, dive into what's actually going on in this moment. Mm -hmm. What's actually going on in our bodies. What, what's actually happening right now. Which on so many levels is therapeutic. Yes. Yeah. I And I think 
uh, you mentioned earlier for devil's advocate, I think, you know, what Iyengar and other alignment-based teachers have given us is a, is a benchmark, is something, you know, you can't compare apples to apples and to know like, well, that doesn't serve me until you know what does or what you're headed towards. And so what I've been grateful for in, in those teachers is that they've given me a benchmark and we use them in our both 200 and 300 hour as a, as a line to say, okay, can you do warrior one like Mr. Angar? Try. And then, you know, 99% of people are like, no, my ankle feels like it's going to snap off. Yeah. Or, if no, you're paying enough attention, knee. you will realize it's not a good choice for me. Right, right. Yeah. right. And, then, and then we have such a, a better conversation to base off of having that benchmark. So Because we're still making shapes. I mean, this, this is the thing you have to like... Right. At some point, what is yoga? Like, we're still making shapes with the body. Mm-hmm. We can't, I mean, we could throw it all, that, that's just a different practice. It's right. like a somatic experiencing practice. And that's not bad either. Like, right. get into a room, just roll around on the floor, ride around like a crazy person, and you will learn great things about yourself. And that yes. could be a beautiful experience. And if we've decided to do this modern postural yoga thing that we all call yoga, and we've decided to do it like this, having a common vocabulary, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Just understanding that it's about the felt experience, the felt sense, and it's not about where bits and pieces lie. Right. Well, and I think to close it up, I think I, I've, I've gone back and forth as I'm certain this is true for anyone who's practiced something for a while is you know like am i practicing yoga like is you know this isn't true yoga air quotes we're air quoting um you know i should move to, i should just like put on a, She's air quoting around an air quoting shooting um I, I need to put on a loincloth and just go to a cave then i'll be a yogi you know yeah. and i've like um i've taken the power out of it for myself of being an aspirant and that i have had life changing moments doing asana yeah do practicing postures failing hard at postures learning what serves learning what doesn't i think that this just takes it especially for those of us who have been practicing for a while this approach has given new life to my study and to my practice and like yeah just being curious and asking questions and not having to arrive at a um clear end and yeah. i think that's been um, a huge blessing for me I mean, you know, it goes back to that. That is the science of yoga. It's the process of asking intelligent, useful, exploratory questions. Mm-hmm. Well, Derek, I think you might be um, one of the most brilliant people I've ever sat in a room with. Um, I don't know that that's as much about you or me, but I feel really cool having spent this time with you. Well, I love um, sitting in this room with you. We're going to have Derek back uh, again and again. I won't even time stamp it because this will be just a plug for every time we bring him back. So um, I'll say that for now. Is there anything else you want to like put out into the ethos that my mom or um, Mary Godley will hear? No, I mean, it was... Uh... No, this was a blast. I will be coming back only during warmer months. Great. <laughs> so I put that... I, I said mm-hmm. that. That must be a thing. That's a thing. Um... Yeah, no, I'm, I love coming out here. I love getting to sit down and chat with you. This is always a blast. Thanks, crew. Bye.